Uh, welcome, dear people, to this new episode of ReporterCast for January 2023. This is Matej Roska, the journalist behind Reporter.London. Thank you, as always, to our sponsors at H5 Strategies in Bucharest, a consulting firm for executives and politicians specialized in Eastern Europe, Central Asia and Africa. And our guest today is a bit of a coup for me because I admire him hugely, which you're not really supposed to say as a journalist, but absent impartiality, I always go for sincerity. I'm lucky to have him on the podcast also because for the life of me, I can't understand why he accepted the invitation, (laughs) given he's already profiled and quoted in all the top newspapers and magazines, plus, of course, television channels. And he has a personal following far bigger than ours. Uh, This guest was the jet-setting head of tax at Magic Circle law firm Clifford Chance in the City of London, which is the top of the pile in terms of international prestige, influence and fees. And he gave it all up to start a blog and poke at the hornet's nest of corruption and general misbehavior, not just in public life, but within his own former profession. And Poke, he did. He's a veritable poacher turned gamekeeper. He walked back from Hades. He turned away from the dark side and he's here with us now. It's Dan Needle, uh, one of um, a, a rare example of, um, of people who are um, afflicted with nominative determinism and the publisher of taxpolicy.org.uk and the current nemesis of former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nadim Zahawi who is um, now the chairman of the Conservative Party. Do I have this right, Dan? Uh, yes, I think I deny I was ever a poacher. There's a, there's a thing about lawyers. Um, I think lawyers don't get enough recognition for the role they do, essentially acting as policemen, keeping their clients in line. I mean, there are so many laws, tax law, environmental law, employ, employment law, company law. Who enforces these? It's certainly not the police or the authorities in practice. They're enforced by the lawyers who say to their clients, ah, you can go this far, but you can't do that. And that's a vital role that lawyers have. Yes, tax lawyers, but lawyers of all kinds in keeping their clients on the straight and narrow. When things tend to break down, is when lawyers don't do that. And lawyers either let their client cross the line or even worse, encourage and facilitate their client crossing the line. And I was never that type of lawyer and my colleagues at Clifford Chance were never that kind of lawyer. So I I certainly don't regard myself as a poacher turned gamekeeper. I was always a gamekeeper. It's just now I can do it in public and I'm doing it for people who thank God aren't my clients. (laughs) Right, of course, of course. And I didn't mean any offense but um, taken. as as uh, as we're about to, to discuss, there are a few lawyers who've, who've gone astray and who are now uh, seeing the, um, the rough side of, uh, of, of your activism. And so um, could you tell us a little bit about your life in short? And uh, for those who can't afford the subscription to the Sunday Times, how did you end up at Clifford Chance? And then uh, how, how were you there and why did you decide to leave? So... I became a lawyer. Initially, I wanted to be a crusading criminal barrister. And then I discovered that whilst I think it's very important that someone prosecutes and defends criminals, that wasn't for me. To my slight surprise, I got accepted by Clifford Chance. Really just dumb luck. I didn't know what I was doing. To my horror, I found that I enjoyed tax law and I became a tax lawyer. But that was 25 years ago. I then became head of 
tax at Clifford Chance's London office. And then I had, I think, the fairly common and not very interesting realisation during lockdown that my priorities had changed a bit and I wanted to spend more time with my family. And I was privileged enough to be able to make that decision. So I retired. I didn't want to walk away completely from law and from tax. That felt like a wasted opportunity. And so I founded Tax Policy Associates, probably the smallest think tank in the UK, with the aim of trying to influence the public debate around tax in a positive direction. Right. Well, that's fantastic. Fantastic news. Um, and um, the, can you say a little bit more about uh, taxpolicy.org.uk, Tax Policy Associates? What uh, kind of policy changes are you looking for and what kind of, um, of work should we, should we be expecting from you? So we do several things. We, I, I say we, Tax Policy Associates is me, but I'm supported by the large number of friends and contacts I made during my time as a lawyer and contacts I've made subsequently. So for example, I write about non-DOMs. I never advised non-DOMs. I have no technical expertise in the non-DOM rules, but I know a lot of people who are, and they're very generous with their time. So the I do tax policy and the associates is all the people I work in association with some of whom I can name, some of whom I can't. So what, what do we do? Um, what do I do? Some of it is speaking behind the scenes, about quite a lot of it is speaking behind the scenes to policymakers. I speak to tax authorities in a number of different countries. I speak to politicians, MPs in all four ma uh, main parties. I speak to journalists. I speak to N NGOs, researchers, academics, there's, there's often a gap. There's a lot of people with technical tax knowledge, m many in many areas, certainly more than mine, but often they're not able to speak out. Professionally, it's hard. And so I'm in the fortunate position of having the expertise and being able to speak freely. And that's an unusual combination. And that means I can be of assistance to people working on tax matters. And that, that's the main point. Well, that's interesting system. because essentially you're doing the job of um, of a very sought after um, tax lawyer, and you're doing it for the public now. So the public has access to to, to the brain of a Clifford Chance tax lawyer now. I suppose well, you can. I would, say want that. to be careful. The, I I can't help people with their own tax. Oh, of course not. To do that, and, and I and I can't do that. And also, I'm only one guy. I'm trying to spend time with my family, so I need to be very selective. But yes, I'm. I'm, I'm trying to be a resource for people working on tax who want technical input. I have views as well. Right. So I've published a series of what I call policy blueprints, ways that I think tax law could change, enough detail to show how it could actually be done. And I, I, I try to influence public debate and get people talking on areas of technical tax where I don't think there's much attention paid. Excellent, excellent. And now to, to talk a little bit about Mr. Nadim Zahawi, a former Chancellor of the Exchequer, former Cabinet Minister, and now Tory Party Chairman. And Current uh, Cabinet Minister, he's still in the Cabinet. Oh, he's still in the Cabinet as Chairman. At least he was an hour ago. I, I haven't Oh, right. Him. I see. Okay. And that's a good point, actually, because he's been in the news uh, very much lately in, in the last few days, because apparently he had to pay a multi-million settlement to HMRC, the British Tax Office. And uh, that's because he, uh, potentially, because we don't actually know why, do we? Uh, but potentially Correct. that's because, yes. Potentially so here, that's here because, are, yes. Yeah, there's what we know and what we can guess. What do we know? We know that 
when Zahari was going to be appointed chancellor, the cabinet office raised a red flag. There was something in his tax affairs that was untoward, but Boris Johnson appointed him anyway. We don't know what that thing was. We also know that when Zahari founded YouGov in 2000, there was a very unusual arrangement where the founder shares that should have been his were held by a Gibraltar company owned by a trust controlled by his parents. And that company later made something like 25 million pounds profit on those shares. We know that. We also know that some of that made its way back to Zahawi. We don't know how much. If lots of it did make its way back, then we certainly tax experts are generally confident Zahawi would have been taxed from it. So this isn't tax avoidance. Maybe he was trying to avoid tax, but didn't work. Tax is due. So now that thanks to the fantastic work of the Sun, we, we know that a large settlement was paid. The obvious inference is that when the YouGov stuff came out in July, Zahawi or his accountants ran to HMRC to try and pay it off and make it all go away. And that's what happened. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that the payment to HMRC is to settle something else, possibly the thing that raised the red flag that was raised by the cabinet office, possibly something completely different. We don't know. But here's the weird thing. It seems quite plausible that Sahari was negotiating or started to negotiate a settlement with HMRC when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. In order to have everything in order for, for, uh, for the new job. So um, all of this at the moment remains uh, speculation, informed speculation, but still speculation on our part. And we I, I don't say... think, well, I, I don't think the, this, the, the payment to HMRC, I don't think can be said to be speculation. The Sun's report is not being denied. He's being given lots of chances to deny it by lots of journalists, and he's not. So that's not speculation. Certainly not. Yeah, certainly not. And um, he, he does say that as of now, all his tax affairs are in order and everything that he was going to, to owe the government, uh, he has paid. Well, so... he, sa he said that repeatedly. But here's the thing. If your tax fares are all in order, you don't make a multi-million pound settlement payment to HMRC. Right. So well, maybe his tax affairs are in point. order, but they certainly were not in order before he started negotiating that settlement. Yes, and hopefully we'll we'll hear a little bit more about that uh, from him or, uh, or or you know the investigative journalists at the Sun or so, somewhere else. Well, his strategy um, throughout has been to say essentially nothing, issue very bland denials, and hope it all goes away. And that that was working until until the Sun revealed the dis dispute payment. Right, and a little bit before that, you had a little bit of a conflict with his lawyers, didn't you? Because um, well, you published um, or uh, you published a tweet or a blog, and then the the, the lawyers um, representing Mr. Zahawi came after you, and then. Um, and then something happened. So why, why don't yes. you tell us the story? So, it's a fascinating story. So when I initially started writing about this, Zahabi responded by saying, the reason the Gibraltar company had the shares is that my father provided the startup capital that enabled YouGov to get going. And I looked into that in a lot of detail, and it's provably false. And I said that. I said, either, yeah, I may have made a mistake, I may have missed something, or... There may be a series of large errors in YouGov's filings, or Zahawi's lying. The next day, Zahawi dropped that explanation and moved on to a new explanation, which we could talk about later. But at that point, I became really quite certain that Zahawi had been lying, and I said so. I then got a message on my phone from a 
partner at Zahawi's law firm asking to talk off the record. I said, no, I'll only accept written correspondence and I'll only accept open written correspondence, meaning not confidential. Well, that's very interesting. And then you got some correspondence. I got some correspondence demanding that I retract by the end of the day and which claimed to be confidential and said that I couldn't publish it and there would be serious consequences if I did. I didn't retract, I doubled down. The next day I got another letter again, claiming to be confidential, again, threatening me with bad consequences if I published it. And I'd heard a a number of these letters were going round. Right, and it's a threat that lawyers tend to make quite... um, uh, quite liberally, unfortunately, and um, then you, well, you went out. Um, and, yeah, you, so, you published. You published the the supposedly private co- uh, correspondence, didn't well, you? So, so I saw this claim that the letter was confidential and it can't be published. And I am not an expert on the law of confidentiality, but like most commercial lawyers, I know enough to be dangerous. And it seemed to me to be completely wrong. So, I, I spoke to a number of people I know who are experts in law of confidence, and. They thought it was completely wrong. So I, I don't agree for a second. This is something that lawyers normally do. I think it's, a, it's an extraordinary thing. It happens, I believe, to be common practice among libel lawyers. And I yes. didn't know that. Yes, it is. Yes, it that. is. So I did several things. First of all, I published the letters. Second, I wrote to the Solicitor's Regulation Authority saying, hey, libel lawyers seem to be doing this thing which involves lying to people and claiming that letters can't be published when they can, you need to do yes, something yes. about it. So this is this is an important point for anyone listening, especially in the media. Um, if you get a letter from a lawyer out of the blue saying this letter is confidential, it's, act- it's actually not, is it? Uh, almost never. There, there's some cases where it might be. Let's say Sahawi had written to me saying, look, yeah, we, we got this wrong. The reason we got it wrong is that my head of media has had a serious accident and it's confidential and we're trying not to tell anyone because his family don't know yet so i'd be really grateful if you keep it quiet now that conceivably is confidential information and very possibly there's a duty of confidence on me not to tell people but if all you're doing is saying retract within 24 hours or we sue you there's no confidential information in that certainly so the the duty of confidentiality in in the example you gave would 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 stem from from the fact that there's a family matter and um, families do have a right to privacy? Well, I think, first of all, there has to be some information in the letter which isn't public. Otherwise, it can't be confidential. And normally in these letters, there isn't. Second, the information needs to be of a kind which which might impute a duty of confidence. So, for example, something private about a family. And then third, quite difficult, it must be reasonable to impute a duty of confidence on you as the recipient of the letter. And that and that's often going to be a tricky one, but it's conceivable you might where there is some sensitive family information or something in the letter. But almost no libel letters are actually like that. So right. most of the time, people are free to publish these letters. And I wish they would, because the whole the, the whole game of trying to intimidate people into not publishing is destroyed if the reaction to that is to publish the letter from the lawyer. Right, exactly. And then it draws attention to the lawyer. It it makes another news story out of the fact exactly. that, that the threats are happening. And um, uh, generally, when, when there is an empty threat of libel, because libel does exist, it's just that we're, we're talking about a, a threat that is, um, that is uh, aimed at intimidating journalists who would otherwise reports uh, honestly and and in the public interest so that's that's what they call a slap strategic lawsuit yeah. against public participation exactly 
So this is the the section of the section of activity that that some lawyers are undertaking that that needs to stop. And now, the the SRA, the Solicitors Regulation Authority, they changed the rules after you approached them, didn't didn't they? Well, I don't think they changed the rules. They they've they issue guidance which is explaining how the SRA says the rules have always been. Nothing's changed. It's always been forbidden for lawyers to mislead people. The okay, SRA so they, is just they saying issued, specifically. They issued tougher guidance, so they changed yeah. the guidance. Well, they're they're saying specifically that a that a letter that claims to be confidential and can't be published, that claim is normally not correct and shouldn't be made. And if right. you received a letter like that five years ago, then the rules prohibited it at the time, and you're perfectly entitled to report that to the SRA now and. I'd urge anyone watching to to do that if they have received a libel threat that contained a, a a claim that it couldn't be published. Right, and it's interesting the fact that it took so it took so long for um, for for this issue to come to light, and um, we we could say that the SRA is taking a, a bit a bit of a, a harder stance against lawyers who knowingly mislead and knowingly sort of skirt the the the, the guidelines. Well, I, I think the whole issue of slaps has been coming into greater public focus, particularly after the uh, the experience of Russian oligarchs and others using the legal system, particularly the, the chap called uh, Putin's chef, the guy who runs the, 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 the Wagner group, using libel law to intimidate journalists in the UK. And that got everyone's attention. The government has announced some excellent anti-slap legislation. There's a fantastic organisation called Anti-Slap Coalition, campaigning for it to go further. And so really, I, I'm just paying a small part in a much wider campaign. And my focus is on this narrow point of the fake confidentiality claims. But there's other very important issues around SLAP that other people are working on. Right. And even beyond SLAP, um, could we could we dive into uh, where lawyers are allowed to be vague? And when, when you're representing your client, how much are you allowed to to misrepresent or mischaracterize reality as as you know it because importantly uh, clients mm. lie to their lawyers as well so well, how, you're, you're the, absolutely not law? allowed you're absolutely not allowed as a lawyer to say things which are un, which you know are untrue you have a duty to your clients certainly but you have a more important duty to the rule of law and you have a duty not to mislead third parties so it's as clear as anything could be that you are not permitted to say things that you know are false. That's the easy bit. The hard bit is, so you let's take Putin chef as the example here. God, what's his name? Um, Evgeny Prigozhin. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll ask you to pronounce it every time his name, his name comes up because you're so good at it now. I'm <laughs> Thank you. Very bad at it. So what's his name? Um, Prigozhin. Was accused by the um, rather wonderful Bellingcat group of running Wagner and he denied it and he and his lawyers sent a letter saying I, I don't run the Wagner group now that is false and I mean, now it's clear to the world that it's false because there's lots of videos of him clearly run, running the Wagner group but even at the time there was enough information out there that even if the lawyer did not know for a fact it was false they should have not merely passed on the assertion from the guy that he didn't run the Wagner group if I'm acting for you and you tell me to write a lawyer's letter saying that you have a ton of gold bullion sitting in your living room, then it's not appropriate for me to simply accept what you're saying and write a letter asserting you have a ton of gold bullion 
what I, sh I I probably don't need to go to enormous lengths to verify it. I don't need to go send a bunch of experts to, to, to weigh it, get spectroscopic analysis of it. There's a limit to what I have to do. But I can't just accept your, on the face of it, rather incredible assertion. I possibly should go there and look for myself. I should maybe ask for photos. I should have some basis for, for what I'm saying. Right, right. In, that's, that's, I think that's an extremely important point because let's say you make a complaint or, or someone, uh, a citizen who's at the wrong end of a bullying yeah. law, law firm makes a complaint to the SRA saying, look, I think these lawyers are knowingly misleading me. Um, then presumably if, if the process works, then the SRA would go to the lawyers and would say, okay, can you tell us what steps you took to verify the accuracy of yeah. these claims? And so then the fact, lawyer has to show something. It shouldn't wait for that. What I've asked the SRA to do is to go into the files of Osborne Clark and the other law firms in this area and see what they've been doing, see whether they have in fact been making fake claims of confidentiality. I bet they have. Seeing where they have been making factual assertions which they either know are false or should know are false right so even in retrospect if, if the regulators discovered the lawyers just took things at face value without verifying and these things turned out to be false that's enough for the lawyers to be disqualified well i, I i'm not an expert in the sra rules and the circumstances in which someone is or isn't struck off but if someone has deliberately set out to mislead a third party in my view yes they should be struck off right do you know of any cases where lawyers have been punished or struck off for this? I, I don't, but it's not my area. So I'm, right, I'm of course, of course. I'm hesitant to, to, to express a view. All of this slap stuff, libel law, is not really what I do. Even the Sahawi matter, I, I didn't set out to be some kind of crusading journalist investigating the wealthy and powerful. I'm what I want to do is write nerdy stuff about tax policy that only 20 people read, but the right 20 people everything else is a bit of a distraction for me and i'm not gonna let go of it but I, i've got to remember it's important for me that i remember this is a distraction i do need to get back to tax policy right of course of course and um, just before the next question i would like to say thank you to our sponsors in bucharest h5 strategies a consulting firm for executives and politicians specialized in um, eastern europe central asia and africa and also to say um, our sponsorship is um, uh, ensures that our editorial side remains independent. So the sponsor doesn't know who our guests are. They don't get involved in the questions, the editorial stuff at all. So thanks for that, because in the brave new world of podcasting, a lot of that actually takes place behind behind the scenes. So it's, that's not happening here. So thanks, uh, thanks to H5 Strategies for that. Now, another question is about the... Uh, the rather um, rather glitzy and, and glamorous Barrowman uh, case. We have uh, Baroness Moan from Scotland, a conservative peer, and um, uh, she and her husband allegedly um, took advantage of, of special uh, contracts with, with the government to supply PPE during the pandemic and apparently that's been turning into a bit of a scandal and you had a little contribution to that could you could you say um, um, a little bit about what what you noticed around that case that others haven't so I had a very small contribution to it and I'm not involved in the PPE investigations know nothing about them but there, there was a report I think in the Guardian that the Barrowman's had a company which successfully bid for PPE without disclosing its link to Baroness Mode. And I thought, well, 
really the civil servants must have been asleep because if you go to company's house you can see who owns the company how could they have failed to do that so i went to company's house and i looked to see who the the ultimate beneficial owner of the companies was said to be and it wasn't said to be baron or baroness Moan. they the company's ultimate beneficial owner the uh the, the person with significant control of the company is listed as a director of the companies and that's surely not right so there had been a failing i don't know if it was accidental or deliberate but it's easy to see why it could have been deliberate a failure to properly disclose who the ultimate owners of the companies were and that's a criminal offense right and by the way of that um it's been reported that the the, the case now has um has attention from the national crime agency so um I suppose before long we're, we're going to find out if if there has been any any crime committed here. I, I suspect they're looking at the more important, to be fair, question of whether there was fraud around the delivery of PPE. I don't know if they're looking at the company law failings. I wish they would, because if these rules aren't aggressively enforced, people will continue to ignore them. Right, and let's let's hope they begin to be to, to be enforced as as aggressively as possible, because God knows there is a. Um, there's an epidemic of fraud seemingly around the world in in the UK as well. The mm. UK was was branded by by Reuters as the fraud capital of the world. I wrote a, a lot about how how much fraud proliferates in the UK for many reasons, uh, partly because the UK has obviously the the English language and everyone around the world speaks it. So it's much easier to 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 try to defraud people in the UK if you speak English. Um uh, and uh, you know that's part of it but part of it is also weak law enforcement and the fact that um, that british police doesn't have dedicated or, or enough dedicated fraud detectives financial um, investigators and so forth and um, there is not a mentality among british law enforcement of, of actually putting people away for criminal offenses although the law says there are plenty of criminal offenses around finance and investment and so forth yeah now, there's also, yeah. I think, a policy choice. There's a there's a wonderful finance journalist called Matt Levine. And he says, when you're running a bank, one of the key questions is how much fraud do you want? The answer can't be zero because it's not possible to run a bank and to have to have no fraud going on. So where do you calibrate it? Similarly, when you're setting up a company's a country's company law and regulatory law, how much company fraud do you want to happen? The answer, if the answer is zero then you're probably making it impossible for anyone normal to do any business. So the answer can't be zero. But where do you set that calibration? And the UK, I think, got it wrong. We made it too easy to set up companies with no proof of, proof of identity. We made it too easy to enter false information when you're setting up a company. And we haven't had enforcement, even when people clearly do provide false information. Right. So there's a, there's a, a, a poisonous mix here of lack of enforcement and, and lack of stringent regulation around company yeah. law. And it's important not to overreact. We don't want to make it so impossible to set up a company that we hold back small business. We also don't want to be overzealous in prosecuting. The, the rules are complicated. Lots of people are going to get it wrong by accident. I don't want to be prosecuting a kebab shop owner for being filled in the wrong box of, of their company's house registration form. But if a multi-million or billion dollar company fails to file its accounts on time, and does so deliberately and lies about it then i think there should be serious consequences of course of course and there's also the matter of uh, company formation agents in the uk 
who have identified these vulnerabilities and they've um, they've made millions um, creating webs of of companies based on false information or or sort of vague and and not quite accurate information for the benefit of all sorts of of, of um, gangsters and uh, and crooked oligarchs and crap politicians from all around the world. So the UK has become an offshore company center. The, um, the, the British company still holds um, a, a, a good reputation when you have a, a, a company involved in um, international business all over the world. It, it looks good for it to be registered in the UK. Mm. And people don't just assume, um, unfortunately, I have to say, they don't just assume that the UK just doesn't do any checks. Wrongly, well, it's about to start doing checks. Yes, I let's hope so. Autumn, I think this autumn the, the, there will start to be proper KYC checks, um, or at least a requirement for identification documents when you set up a company. Let's see how that goes. And have, have you looked at all into uh, the overlap between tax law and uh, and cryptocurrency and whether there's a there's a, an avenue for tax evasion? In, in the crypto industry by changing your profits into crypto and not declaring them yeah. at market value. But how do you, how do you feel about that? So, so this I have looked at. So there was a massive tactical mistake by HMRC in the early days of crypto. They put out guidance saying that they thought that crypto transactions were very possibly gambling transactions as a matter of UK tax law, which meant they weren't taxable. Why did they do this? Well. Why don't we tax gambling in the UK? And the reason we don't tax it is that HMRC reckon most people lose when they gamble. And so it's a better deal for HMRC if we don't tax winnings, but we also don't give tax relief for losses. That's the, the policy justification for not taxing gambling. And it's pretty sensible. And I think they thought the same applied to crypto. That This was a silly fad. People are going to lose money. We don't want to start giving tax relief to people. So let's say it's gambling. Now, technically, that was clearly wrong. And I said so publicly at the time, but I think a lot of people relied on that when they made large crypto profits, they didn't declare them. HMRC later changed their guidance and they're now clear that your crypto profits are taxable, which is certainly right. But I fear that they missed a lot of people at the boom who didn't pay tax and would have used that HMRC guidance as an excuse for doing it. Big mistake. Right. And that guidance would stand up in court. Guidance has no legal force. It's just HMRC's view. Uh, personally, I, I'm as confident as I am on anything that if I buy crypto from someone and later sell it at a profit, that is not a gambling transaction. Right. OK, so they can still come after people who made lots of money from crypto, even while that crypto uh, gambling um, guidance was enforced. That's probably quite, quite a difficult question. Um, maybe perhaps it depends. Right. Okay. okay. I say to, to avoid giving you an hour about when you're entitled to rely on HMRC guidance and when you're not. Probably they can, but it, it's not completely clear. Right. Okay. So uh, another question on uh, on um, tax policy um, with the UK, I think um, taxes are obviously increasing, and there's um, there's a stereotype going around that um, people expect to live like like in Hong Kong with low regulation and low tax when they come to the UK, but they end up uh, living like in France where the regulations are high, taxes are high and bureaucracy is quite thick. So I just wondered uh, what you made of that. Did you did you think the UK should, um, should be more like Hong Kong or more like France? Well, so the first question may be, where is the UK now? Is the UK in fact taxing people as much as France? And the answer is 
No, not even oh. close. Most people in the UK pay tax at a level which is one of the lowest in the, in the developed world. That's something that very few politicians say because people don't believe it, but it nevertheless is true. And anyone doubting that should go to the taxpolicy.org.uk website where we go into excruciating levels of detail on how we know that that's so. So people in the UK are rather undertaxed compared to continental Europe. So when you look at British welfare provision, the level of public services in the UK and say, well, public services in the UK are much, much less good than on the continent. What do you expect? We pay a lot less tax than on the continent. Right. Well, they're, they're becoming uh, worse, that's for sure. But um, so you don't think the welfare state should be reduced to, to um, match the, the level of taxation rather than uh, increase well, the level of taxation? Yeah, there's a political question. What kind of country do you want? Do you want a country with continental levels of public services and continental levels of taxes? Or do you want a country with US levels of public service and US levels of taxes? You have to choose. And my my own predilection is for the first, but it's perfectly, I think it's perfectly rational for someone to disagree and want the second. But what is not rational is to think there's another way. To think that you can, on the one hand, magically cut taxes without cutting public services, or on the other, we can magically raise our public services to continental standards without raising taxes. Both of those positions are clearly very popular if you put them to someone in an opinion poll without context, but they're lies. You can't yes, do Yes, it. it's cakeism, isn't it? it? It's absolutely cakeism. And there's a lot of it. Because otherwise, yes. you have to say to people, you know, you don't actually pay that much tax in the UK. You get the public services we'd expect for that level of tax. And if you don't like it, well, you need to either be ready to pay more tax or you need to lump it and accept the rather poor levels of public services. Right. Well, that's interesting. That's that's something I, I would wish politicians would say more. And frankly, with Brexit, I thought uh, people were told that they could uh, live in Singapore, but benefit from um, from uh, European levels of, of public service whilst, you know, whilst cutting uh, immigration uh, cutting EU regulation and sort of being uh, wholly independent and 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 buccaneering, which I thought, you know, it's it's becoming uh, it's it's becoming clear it's it's not the case. So I think the country still needs to figure out what it wants for Brexit that, from from Brexit, doesn't it? I don't think Brexit really changes the the tax public services mix. You still have a choice to be like I don't know um, Luxembourg and be in the EU, or to be like France or Denmark or Belgium and be in the EU. The, right. the, the EU is, is not the cause of the UK's current tax and public services mix. Right, That's I suppose that's accurate on, on its own. Um, but people and... would ask me, often we, yeah, at the time of Brexit, did an awful lot of work advising people on Brexit, appearing on panels, being interviewed. Often I'd say, is, is the UK now going to go the direction of Singapore on Thames? And I said, are, are you serious? Have you looked at the level of public services in Singapore, the level in the UK, and do you think any government could reduce public services to the level of Singapore without revolution in the streets? So, um, yeah, so definitely the, the, the British public want Scandinavian-style public services, and it's, it's all a matter of getting them to accept uh, Scandinavian-style taxes, I suppose. Yeah, we, 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 we all want it, we're not going to get it. Probably... 
realistically, people who want higher public services, the best they can expect is something like in the Blair years, when there was significantly increased spending on public services, funded by stealth taxes, most of which were um, not raising tax thresholds, even as incomes grew. And so a lot more people did, did pay more tax, but didn't particularly notice it. Right. So instead of increasing the, the threshold, you just hold it back while wages increase. Yeah. And, and there, there are some other measures, too. But, but those were the main ones that raised an awful lot of tax and enabled that as the economy grew, a good part of that growth went into public services. Now, that's a lot less easy to do in a time when you don't have economic growth. So I don't know if a future Labour government, if there is one, is going to even have that option. Are you in touch with them at all about taxes? I speak to politicians in all four main parties, so yeah, I'm, I'm, right, I'm in okay. touch with, with everyone. To, the, to fourth, the, the fourth would be the SNP, I suppose. Yes, so I, sh- I should have been clear. By, by four, I mean SNP, Tory, Lib Dem, Labour. I, sp- I speak to MPs on and off in, in, in all those parties. Right, and so um, um, if um, if there are still people out there who would like to see low tax, low, um, low um, state involvement and... Um, um, I suppose then Florida, go for it. absolutely Florida campaign on, on that I identify the public services you're cut to be able to do that and that's a coherent political position that has my respect but right. go out there campaign for lower taxes without saying what you're cut and I will laugh at you right well that's fair enough and um, and the same for people on the if... other side the the people people who suggest that, that we can radically change the nature of society and have higher public services and do it just by taxing a few millionaires more without increasing tax on normal people you can't. It's never been done. Right. It's and the the Rolling Stones fled to to um to warmer warmer climes immediately when when the taxes went up, didn't they? And if they did it, anybody else with the money can do it. Yeah. It's you can you can actually put put numbers on this. I, I've drawn a chart which has the level of tax on the average worker on the x-axis and the level of public services on the y-axis. So you can have four quadrants. You've got the countries which tax more than the UK and have better public services in the UK, quite a few. You've got the countries who tax less than the UK and have worse public services in the UK, quite a few. There's some countries that tax more than the UK and have worse public services, not a great deal. How many countries are in the fourth quadrant? How many countries tax the average person the, the, the same or less than the UK, but have better public services? Answer, none. Not one, yes. Yeah, if it's possible to just raise tax on the uber wealthy and use that to improve public services and not raise tax on the average person, why has nobody in the world done it? Because it's not possible, because they because you would have to impose capital controls, wouldn't you? Uh, it is one answer. The other answer is that it doesn't add up. They just aren't. There are a lot more normal people than there are super wealthy people. Right. Well, so then um, the final, final question would be what's next for, for your think tank and um, um, what what should we expect in the near future? What, what should we expect? So uh, we've got a big report on tax avoidance coming out soon, not involving politicians, but involving a very well-known industry, revealing hundreds of millions of pounds of tax avoidance, which hasn't been covered before. So that's coming out soon. What industry? I have to ask. Uh, you have to ask, and I have to not tell you. Sorry. Okay. Um, stay, stay, stay tuned. We. When, got... when, when are you publishing this? Uh, I think that's going to be next week. Oh, good. good, good, good. Uh, then we've got, I think, something coming out today in the FT on VAT and how VAT is holding back the growth of small companies, particular way in which the VAT works. 
We've got something coming out again, probably in a couple of weeks, about a way in which HMRC is not on purpose, but accidentally hurting some of the poorest in society and how that can be changed. So that, that those are the next three things we've got. Well, if it leads to cutting tax on working people and cutting VAT on small companies, then um, I'm I'm very, very happy to read about it. And I suppose that's it. We'll, we're going to leave it there. Dan Needle, thanks so much for your time and all the best to you and, and the family and, and the think tank. And Thank happy you for having me on. Year, Happy New Year to you and yours and, and, uh, and also to our sponsors and the listeners. The sponsor is H5 Strategies in Bucharest, a consulting firm for uh, executives and politicians specialized in Africa, Eastern Europe and Central Asia. And also, I have to say, this has been the last episode of the season. We're going to take a few weeks or maybe a bit longer than that even to look at how to approach the future episodes. And hopefully we'll, we'll be back in the spring with, with new guests. Um, thanks very much. Thanks.